0: We are in the last uh, sermon of this series, and uh, this series that we're uh, looking at, it's been, it's called A Priest and a Physicist Walk into a Bar, which uh, is, a, is a new title, I think, from any other church series title you've ever heard. And it's, it, it's, a, it's essentially a statement that's asking for a punchline, and so we've been asking for some punchlines to help us finish the joke. And now here's the deal, because this is the last one, I got to choose the winner, And because when it comes to science, uh, I'm kind of an idiot compared to Greg. So if you submitted one and it was super nerdy and smart, if Greg were choosing the winner, you probably would have won. But I chose, so it was the only one I understood. So here's, (laughs) here's the winner. A priest and a physicist walk into a bar. The physicist walks up and says, I'd love a glass of wine. And so the bartender looks at the priest and says, what do you have? And the priest looks at him and says... How about a loaf of bread? It's a communion joke, because we're at church. Isn't that nice? It takes a second. Just let it it sink in and marinate. So Eric, whoever Eric is, Eric is the winner. Uh, So congratulations, Eric. You have won nothing. We are so proud of you. Budgets are tight all around. Um, No, actually, I think you get like a signed book or something, Um, but I don't know. You might not, for all I know. Uh, But here's the deal. We decided, since this is the last uh, sermon in this series, we've tackled some really hard things. So we thought, let's try and deal with a simpler one. And so we said, well, what could be simpler than Genesis 1 and how the creation story lines up with science and faith? So we thought, let's dive into that one because there hasn't been any controversy in it. So the question is, (laughs) is it possible to be a rational, scientific-minded person and a person of faith who takes seriously the story of Genesis 1? That's our question. And I I, I would argue this has been a rather convoluted one, um, which is why we're titling this sermon Creation Confusion because I believe there has been a bit of creation confusion. And the reason that we think these topics are so important is because when research was done recently looking at 18 to 29-year-olds who grew up in the church and then left, 52% of that group said the reason they left was because Christians were just too confident they had all the answers. And nowhere does this show up more than in the context of science and faith, and especially in the context of how the world was created and when it was created and how it was created. And so we want to be the kind of people that that can say adamantly, we do believe that faith goes beyond reason at times, but we also are going to proclaim that faith should never go against reason. So these two things do not have to be juxtaposed to each other. So... I want to tell you about a couple experiences I've had as it relates to this question of the creation and Genesis 1. The, the first one is about my wife. So my wife uh, grew up in a church in Iowa, and the church that she grew up in um, had a youth pastor there. And one of the things she learned in this youth pastor was that this youth pastor, the, one of the hills, theologically, he was willing to die on was that the earth was created 6,000 years ago in six 24-hour literal days. And if you didn't believe that, you weren't saved, which was a whole thing. Um, so that was her experience. And then when I was growing up uh, and I was in high school, I thought that it was my job to defend God against the evolutionists. I thought this was my job. So I studied like a good nerd does. I read books by Michael Behe and Bill Dembski and Philip Johnson. As, as you can imagine, nobody invited me over in high school. I was very lonely. And, but I, what I realized is that And I I honestly just realized this like a month ago, I was preparing to answer questions that nobody was asking me. That I, like, do you know people like that? Who, like, every time you come up to them, they say something and you're like, I didn't ask you. Like, but that's what I was doing. I was preparing for a question and it was like, I, I, I thought I was preparing to defend God, but I think what I was doing was preparing to defend my own rightness, my own certainty, my own sense of okayness that like, well, I can defend this belief. I can defend this thing, and it—you know—sometimes it is just like an esoteric argument or a theological thought game. But it—it it, it can get more serious than that, because I—I I remember hearing the story in 2014. Uh, there was a, a worship leader who started a band, a guy named Michael Gunger, and he started a band called Gunger. And he—he—he uh, he, he wrote a blog post in 2014 called "What Do We Believe," and he had the audacity to say, as a Christian and as a rational-minded scientific person, he didn't think he could believe that the earth was created 6,000 years ago in six literal days. He, just, he, he, didn't, he couldn't fit that in a grid of a scientific worldview. And, as churches have always done, they were gracious with him. Uh, they said, God bless you in your disagreement. Uh, no! They canceled tours. They threw his music out of the... Christian bookstores that it was in and they were just so hateful online and dismissed him out of hand. And I think what these three instances highlight is that sometimes we have the danger of turning an issue into a litmus test for salvation, which is one of the most dangerous places to be where you start turning what should be a peripheral conversation into a core belief. And here at Woodland Hills, we are adamant that not all beliefs are equally important. That there are some that are core, but there are many that are peripheral. And when we talk about this, we talk about it in like concentric circles. And when we talk about it, we say that the center of the center of the center is the cross. That when we want to know what God looks like, we look to Jesus on the cross. We we agree with Paul when he said uh, that that he had come to the people and and proclaimed only Christ and him crucified, that that was the core of what he knew. And outside of the cross, uh, we have the dogma, the dogmas of the Christian faith. These are the creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the historic Christian faiths. and, And then outside of the dogma, we have the doctrine, the way that we flesh out the dogma. All the different ways we decide, okay, uh, how do we understand within this um, denomination, what what does sovereignty mean? How how do we understand that within the context of the community we're in? And then outside of that, we have opinion. And at this church, we have a lot of opinions. Um, Greg has a lot of wrong opinions. And... uh, So, like, we have opinions about Old Testament and violence, right? We have opinions about charismatic gifts. We have opinions about what it looks like for a Christian to engage in politics. We have opinions about uh, sexual identity and gender ethics and how that works within a community. We have all these different opinions. And the danger, like I mentioned, but this has been a historic problem for the church, is that we start dividing over things we should have been discussing. That we take what is an opinion and we turn it into a core and then we separate. And uh, our goal, our hope, our plea for us as a church is that we would be a people that have a firm center with soft edges. That we would be a people that don't divide over the things that we should be discussing. We, that we want to be a people that stop fighting the border battles around the edges. We want to be a people that are bridge builders, not wall builders, which I don't mean to be political, sorry. Um, we want to be a people that solidify the core and say yes to the cross and have all sorts of conversations around the opinions, amen? So... What I want to do is try and apply this to the topic of creation and Genesis 1. So, and what I'm going to say right off the bat is that this is going to be a rather cursory overview and because we're into handouts today, we have a third handout. Um, We have been doing a great job. Uh, This is a handout that I'm going to walk through very quickly, but if you are interested in more details, feel free to grab one at the hello desk. But when we talk about what is dogmatic, what is core about our beliefs when it comes to the creation story, and the one thing that we proclaim around here as a core dogmatic belief around Genesis 1 is that God created that God created, that he's only one God, that he created by his word, that we, the creation is good, it's been affected by sin, and that people have equal value and are made in God's image. This is what we are dogmatic about. This is the core of what we proclaim here. Which, it eliminates some things, um, like it, it would eliminate uh, like naturalistic evolution. The, the belief that the earth came about as a closed system without the influence of anything external to it. Um, and so, to the degree that somebody might hold that belief, then we, we, might, we, we might need to have a conversation with them and, and, and ask them, well, tell me more about what you think about that. But the reality is that most of the places where the church has divided around this creation story in Genesis 1 have been far more peripheral. Um, there's been two main areas where the church has uh, divided around this. The questions are, first, how did God create? That's the first area. Um, and within the context of how God created, there's a number of different options that, uh, that Christians have taken, all of which fit within orthodoxy. Uh, the first one is fiat creation. And this is essentially the view that God spoke creation into existence in six literal days. That's how he did it. Uh, that's Probably the most literal way you could read Genesis 1. And the second one is something called progressive creation, which uh, is basically the idea that God created all the species and then used the process of evolution over millions of years in order to get them to the place where they are now. It's often called microevolution. Um, And then there's uh, theistic evolution, which essentially says God birthed everything into being, but then was a part of the evolutionary processes as things evolved and moved along till we got to today. Um, So these are three different options of how God created. And I think what's interesting is, as I mentioned, I... um, I was in high school and trying to convince everybody that evolution was wrong and could, because I'd never heard a convincing reason how the concepts of evolution could line up with Scripture. And so this, um, this is a little addendum that we didn't talk about last night, but I realized I had time, so this part is free. Um, the, here, here's the thing. I was reading this uh, study that my favorite biblical theologian, N.T. Wright, did, and here's what he did. He talked about how if the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians says that in the beginning, all things were created by and through Christ. So Christ was there in the beginning, creating everything. So if Christ was there in the beginning, the question is, how does Jesus, how does Christ create? And so then he went to the New Testament, and he looked at this other thing that Jesus inaugurated and created called the kingdom of God. And and he said, okay, what is the method that Jesus used to create? And there were a couple key analogies. One of the first key analogies Jesus says about the kingdom of God is that it'll be like a seed that you plant in the ground and it slowly moves and shifts and evolves and mutates and turns into something you would have never expected when you planted that seed in the ground. And then he talked about the example of leaven going into dough. That you put it into the dough and it moves its way through, it moves and evolves and mutates and changes and turns into a loaf of bread that you never would have expected when you saw the leaven. And so then he asks the question if Christ is the creator of the kingdom, the inaugurator of the kingdom, and if scripture says he is the creator at the beginning, is it possible that his methodology has remained the same? That he is using. Uh, opportunities within creation that they might slowly move and evolve and change, and and for me, this was a light bulb of, oh, maybe the concept of evolution and the fact that God might use these processes is actually consistent with how Christ creates all along, which I think is interesting, and end of addendum. Okay, Um, so we've got one opinion area, how did God create, but the second opinion area is when did God create? which has all sorts of other op- options in here. The, the first option that historically has been held uh, by a lot of people within the church is called the Young Earth View, which is essentially that the earth is about six to 7,000 years old, and, and even though the earth seems older, that that's based on uh, a flood that happened throughout the world that made everything seem older than it actually is, but that based on timelines in Genesis, that's just how old it is. Um, And then you have the day-age view, which which would see the earth as very, very old, and that the six days of creation, each day represents thousands or millions of years. So the day-age view, and then you have the restoration or the gap view. This is the view that Greg holds, um, which for the next 30 minutes, I plan on explaining to you why it's terribly wrong. uh, But the basis of the idea is that This view believes that the earth is millions of years old and that Genesis 1, verse 1 is the verse telling us when God created the earth millions of years ago. But the the point of this view is that they believe between Genesis 1, 1 and Genesis 1, 2, there is a gap. That something happened to create the chaotic experience that you see in the remainder of Genesis. So the earth was originally old, but God needed to recreate the earth after Genesis 1-1 based on some of the chaos that came. And then there's the literary framework view, which uh, is this view that when we try and ask scientific questions of a book like the Bible, we're actually misrepresenting what the genre is. That this book was not attempting to explain to us scientific facts, it was trying to convey to us in a literary framework who God is, to answer theological questions rather than scientific questions. So these are opinions, um, and again, like I said, uh, feel free to grab the flyer to learn more about them or check out different verses, but the, the thing that's interesting is that every one of them within the church have been caricatured. Like, you can find ways to make fun of any of them. To say, well, you're not rational and scientific because of course the earth can't be 6,000 years old or you don't believe the Bible's literal so you must not love God or be a person of faith so you don't trust that or or you have some idea that, well, there just happens to be this gap in between verse one and verse two that we can't actually prove but, well, it makes sense of the million-year-old. Like, there's ways to caricature every one of them and our job, though, as kingdom people is to remember that when it comes to the essentials, we strive for unity, And in the non-essentials, we are going to proclaim liberty and in all things, we're going to do it with charity. That all of the ways that there are dynamics around this that we're going to misunderstand each other and disagree with each other, we're going to proclaim charity around that and recognize that if we're not talking about that God created, we're dealing with opinion which should be things we can discuss rather than divide over. Amen? Okay. Now with that out of the way, let's dive into the text. So Genesis 1, 1 through 5, here's what it says. In the beginning, which is the Hebrew word Bereshit, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, which is the Hebrew word Tohu Vavohu, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, which is the word Techom, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Now, what I would like to do with this text is, um, what I want to do is kind of dismantle some of our textual assumptions so that we can see the text for what it is. Uh, And so I I want to give us three examples of what I would say this text is not trying to say. And the first thing this text is not trying to say is it's not trying to inform us of the beginning of all time, that there's this interesting word right at the beginning, Bereshit. Um, Now, this word literally means in a beginning. Um, Some translations translate it as when God began to create, Um, because there's no definite article in this word. Now, in Hebrew, they kind of cram a bunch of words inside one word. And so in this one, there's none of the notations to let us know this is a definite article, which is, um, I mean, contextually, a lot of translations will say in the beginning because, well, it's the beginning of the Bible. But if you look at the actual word, there's something going on there that at least is supposed to hint at us that there might have been something before Genesis 1-1 going on, which, if nothing else, frees us up in the question of when did God create? To say, well, I guess it could be any of those. Um, uh, One of the other things that this text is not doing is, I don't think this text is trying to defend what's called creation ex nihilo which is this this theological idea that God created out of nothing, which I I firmly agree that God does create out of nothing. I just don't think Genesis 1 is where we get the evidence for it. That there are a number of other passages we could go to that proclaim the fact that God did create out of nothing. But when we look at this text, what's interesting is that Genesis 1-2 says that when God began to create, even before he began to create, the earth was formless and void, which is this Hebrew word tohu vohu, which it could be formless and void, but it often is translated disordered or chaotic or unformed. And so it's, it's as if the writer is trying to let us know right at the beginning there was some chaos that needed to be dealt with, which, which begs the question, where did that come from if God hadn't even started to create yet? which I think is why this text is not trying to make the argument that God created out of nothing, although there are other other places in Scripture that do that. And and the third thing I think this text is not trying to do is to explain to us the process of how matter originated. Because if, if there's already matter when we walk into the text, then I think the message of the text is much more about how does God order the chaos than create the matter. Because this text is all about God taking what was chaotic and actually turning something beautiful into it. Which, it's like, um, if, if I were to say that the whole of Scripture is about a gospel proclamation of who Jesus is, I think this is the exact message we would hope to find in Genesis 1. This message that God has always been a God who shows up in the midst of chaos and forms it into something that is beautiful. And I think that's exactly what we see here, which which is why, if you look at a few other translations, and I want to focus on one, um, you see a totally different picture in Genesis 1. So look at how the Jewish Publication Society translates this. They say, when God began to create heaven and earth. So if you notice, they seem to be open to the idea that something was happening before God began to create. And then they kind of parenthesis verse 2. The earth being unformed and void, with darkness over the surface of the deep and a wind from God sweeping over the water, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, a first day, which if you noticed in the other translation, it said the first day, which They say a first day because in Hebrew it says a first day. And because there's not any theological baggage connected with the idea of this needing to be the beginning of time, they're able to look at it and say, well, it says a first day, which is pointing to the fact that there's something else we need to understand in this outside of necessarily what are the scientific implications of Genesis 1. So if. This text is not helping us better understand when God created the world and how God created the world, the question is, what is the picture it's giving us? What is the visual we should get? What's the, are there any cosmological implications that we can learn from this text? So I I want us to run through the six days to see, okay, what did God actually create when he created? So here's a picture of kind of a representation of Genesis one, of what God created. And, And on day one, what God did is he separated the light from the darkness. So he took the light and the darkness and he separated them. And then on day two, he created this firmament, this vault. So how the text describes it is he created this kind of hard surface Pushed it up and another hard surface and lowered it down in order to separate the tohu vavohu, the chaotic waters and so when he had separated those, you had this hard surface above and a hard surface below and then on day three, the land is created and it 's created because God is able to take control over the chaotic waters and then the plants and the vegetation come up and then on day four we have the stars and what the text says is that God created a lesser light and a greater light, which it intentionally doesn't use the words sun and moon, um, which we'll get to, but the, the image that you get in the text is it's like, it's like a kid's bedroom where like, you put the glow-in-the-dark stars on the ceiling. Like, the image cosmologically is that the sun is kind of jammed into the firmament and the moon is jammed into the firmament and the stars are all kind of put on that hard surface in the sky. So we've got that happening day four, and then day five, we have the fish created, we have the birds created. This is actually the day where um, God created sea monsters, is what it says in the text, so, um, which is actually really important, and we'll come back to that. Uh, and then day six, we have animals created, we have humanity created, and then day seven, we have the Sabbath, the seventh day. So the question is, if this is the cosmological representation in Scripture of what the universe is like, I think we have some serious scientific problems. Number one being, I, as far as I know, the earth does not have a firmament above it within which the stars, the sun, and the moon are kind of stuck to. Which, if, if that's not true, if, if that's not the literal way the world works, then what do we make of Genesis 1? Is it it inaccurate in its scientific explanation of the cosmological universe that we understand and that we see today? To which I would answer, yes. I would also say, that's not the point. That if, if we want to read this text literally, we end up going down a lot of roads that, end up being adventures and missing the point. That we start to start looking into the details and try and understand the nuance when the reality is if we want to understand what the text is saying literally, we have to look at what the text is saying literarily. Which look at this as what is the literature here? Is it, what's the genre? What are the figures of speech? What, what are the types of language that are being used? What's the context of it? Because it, I, I think what the story is conveying is more of a topical rather than sequential explanation of the creation of the world, which shouldn't surprise us too much because that's what we see throughout the Gospels, that if you read the Gospels, they're, they're not sequential. They're, they're different one from the other because the authors are trying to convey a point, which doesn't mean it's any less historical. It just means somebody was trying to tell us something or maybe answer questions that you and I aren't asking. And I, I know I'm good at that answering questions nobody's interested in. So here's what I think our challenge is, that if the text, I think, is pointing away from Genesis being written to satisfy our curiosity about science, and if the cosmology appears to be incorrect with what we know about science, how do we understand this text? How do we translate? What do we do with it? And I think this is where reading the text literarily starts to help us, because then we get forced to ask the question, what's the genre here? What, what, What is the context within which we will actually be able to interpret this text? And that's where we get into the other creation stories, because Genesis 1 is not the only creation story that was written at the time of Genesis 1. That there were creation stories written by the neighbors in the ancient Near East. There were ones written by the Sumerians, the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians. And I think what's interesting is that these creation stories are actually the ones that help us calibrate the meaning of Genesis 1. Because, like, if we try and compare Genesis 1 to a science book, it's, it's like trying to compare communication in Morse code versus an iPhone. Like, these are totally different communication methods, and they're trying to convey very different things. So so what we're going to try and do is calibrate how we interpret Genesis 1 by looking at some of the other creation stories in the ancient Near East. And the one we're going to focus on is uh, one from Babylonia called the Enuma Elish. So we're going to take a look at a video and uh, see if you notice any similarities and how it differs from Genesis 1. Because of copyright restrictions, we trim some content from this sermon. Please visit our website, whchurch.org, where we'll try to post a link to the material that we used. Whew, I feel like we could just pray. That'll preach, huh? Man, well, that's weird. Um, okay, now, what we got to do is get in the headspace of the ancient Near East, because that story is very similar to other creation stories that would have been around at the time of Genesis 1. And if that was the type of story you had seen for how creation happens, can you see how unique Genesis 1 would have seemed? So what we're going to do is take a quick look at what are some similarities between these stories because it's, uh, the, there are... Some very obvious ways there's some borrowed material, but even more so, there are places where the Genesis creation story is utterly unique in the ancient world, which I think is where we start to get at the lesson. So, the similarities the the first similarity is that each of them have a six day creation. So, both of them, the creation happens in six days, uh, which is similar and consistent in the ancient Near East. Uh, the second similarity is that they both have creation out of chaos. That, that in the Genesis story, you have creation out of the tohu vavohu, out of the chaos. Um, in the Enuma Elish, there is a definitely more messy version of chaos. A uh, lot of killing, a lot of violence going on, but the, the creation is done out of chaos. Um, the third similarity is that there are sequence similarities. So in both stories the light is created before the sun, before the moon, and before the stars. And in both stories, humanity is the final thing created. So you have at least a similarity in that way. And then you also have cosmological similarities. So this idea that the way that the earth is created is like, did you notice how it described Tiamat? That Tiamat got kind of broken in half like a shellfish, which is weird, but, um, but one half was used to block the chaotic waters above, the other half was used to block the chaotic waters below. What does that sound like? That it's similar to the language you get in Genesis 1 of how creation happened. So we've got some similarities, but where this really gets interesting is when you notice what's distinct, And the first thing that is different between these two stories is that creation happens by divine word rather than divine war. That there is no explanation or even um, uh, implication towards there being any kind of battle that God needed to fight in Genesis 1. That he created just by speaking and it's in that way that we get to the second distinction which is the singularity of God's rule. That Over and above all the other creation stories, what we see in Genesis 1 is that everything that was ascribed worth as a God in the other creation stories, the God in Genesis 1 says, I spoke and I created it. And there was no battle. That the sun, which was a God, the moon, which was a God, the waters, which were a God, the sea monster that was a God, all of which the Genesis story said, well, no, I spoke him into existence. And they don't rival me. Which leads to the third distinction, which is humanity's place in the narrative. And and while the sequence is similar, did you notice the uniqueness of humanity? That in the Enuma Elish, humanity is created to essentially do the stuff the gods didn't want to do, otherwise known as be their slaves. Whereas in the creation story in Genesis 1, humanity is made in the image and the likeness of their creator and are given a unique purpose. They are told that you have value, you have worth, you are not an afterthought, that that the creation of humanity is actually the climax of the creation story in Genesis 1 and is an afterthought in the Enuma Elish and other creation stories. That God created you with a purpose which is unique in the creation story we get in Genesis. Which leads to the fourth difference, which is the concept of the Sabbath. That the Sabbath, which is the seventh day and is we don't find anywhere else in any other creation stories, that it's not just about God having a rest. It's about God saying, I'm creating a rhythm that humanity is to follow because I didn't create you to be a slave. I created you to delight in the creation I made. That I created you so that you could experience the joy. You could not be working all the time, but you could actually take a rest can I get an amen? <laughs> Can we take a rest? That This is utterly unique within the creation stories that we see. And I think this is where we start to get an inkling of what the message is in Genesis 1. When we, start, when we get free to let go of seeing the text as a scientific description and actually latch on to the fact that this text is a theological and gospel declaration of who our God is and who it is that we serve that that while While science can explain to us some of the how, it can never get at the why of purpose, which I think is the point of Genesis 1, to let you know that, yeah, you have all these questions and they're great questions, but what I'm interested in is in a greater thing. I want to let you know why you're here. I want to let you know what you're doing here. I want to let you know what God thinks about you. And I want to let you know what your vocation is in the world which I love the way Walter Brueggemann says this he's an Old Testament scholar he says the text Genesis 1 is not a scientific description but a theological affirmation the poem which is how he talks about Genesis 1 it does not narrate how it happened as though Israel were interested in the method of how the world became God's world such a way of treating the grand theme of creation is like reducing the marvel of a moving artistic experience to explorations and technique Israel is concerned with God's lordly intent, not his technique. I think when we are able to be freed from the seduction of needing to see Genesis 1 as a literal explanation of how the world actually came to be, we start to actually wake up to the good news that is embedded in the text. And the good news that is embedded into this text, which I would say is the underlying theme and the quintessential true statement of this text, is that the God that we serve has no rivals. That as we sang about earlier, this same God who brought about everything into existence when we don't know, how we don't know, this same God has no rivals. That over and against every other creation story where there's a battle and a fight and trying to take control one over the other, this creation story says there is one God and he created it all and he did it by the sound of his voice. That this is the God that we serve and it means that, cre- that God can bring new beginnings out of the chaos that is swirling all around every one of us, that it is not the end of the story, that that creation itself is the first incarnation, that God showed up in the creation. And I, I think this idea that God has no rivals is ultimately the theme of this entire series, that science and faith do not have to be rivals because the God that we serve, who created everything, created science. And if he created that, and we know that he has no rivals, don't you think he's going to be okay with us asking questions about it? Don't you think he's going to be okay with us digging into it? Because the the deeper we dig, the closer we show up to God. That he created this, and so as we dive into it, what we should expect to find are hints and clues of the God we see in Scripture. That this is the God that we serve, and he's a God that is still creating new things. In 2 Corinthians five seventeen, Paul talks about that you look and a new creation has shown up and that new creation is y'all, the church, these people who are committed to Jesus showing up to follow him. And here's what I am convinced of, that if the God that we serve has no rivals and you are made in the image of that God and he has empowered you with his Holy Spirit, then what was true at creation is true today. That if our God has no rivals, then that addiction that is rivaling you will not ultimately win. Because the God that we serve has no rivals. That that fear that is gripping you, that you think you will never get free from, if you are made in the image of God who has empowered you with his spirit and that God has no rivals, then that fear will not ultimately win. You don't get to be defeated by it because God says, I have no rivals. That... When, when we are in the midst of the most distressing moments of our life, when we are in the midst of the chaotic water swirling around us and it feels like that rival is going to defeat us, God says, you got to know that that will not ultimately win because I have no rivals. And that will not rival me. That, that marriage that has fallen apart all around you and it feels like it's just one big chaotic water and you're wondering if you will ever come up for air again. That the God of the universe comes to all of us and says, that is not a rival to me and it will not ultimately define you. It does not get to win because the God who created the world did it without rivals. That those rivals that are swirling all around us in the chaos, that God says, I can breathe something new there. I can breathe something beautiful there because I've been doing it since the creation of the world. That that is what I do and it is how I create. And what's amazing is that the way God creates is by the word of God. And we learn in John 1 that the word of God has a name. And his name is Jesus. Because Jesus was the one who had been there and has been there and will be there bringing life to the chaos that is swirling around. And that is, I think, the core message of Genesis 1, is that we would learn that this God who has always been there will always be there and is going to walk with us to remind us that the rivals will not ultimately win because God created without a rival. Um, So we cling, (laughs) we cling to this king. We cling to this God who created without a fight, We cling to this God who has no rivals. We cling to this God who has freed us from the power of the rivals in our world. And we say, thank you, God. And we cling to you every moment of every day because it's when we lose sight of God that we start to think the rivals might win. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, all of a sudden the rivals are what God sees them as, not a rival, (laughs) So that is the good news. That is the gospel. That is what Genesis 1 is trying to teach us. And my prayer is that we would cling to that center rather than getting all messed up in the peripherals. And that we would hold firm to the God who says, you are free. You are free no matter what it looks like. So, as we close... um, I'm going to ask uh, if you would stand with me and uh, I'm going to invite the prayer teams to come forward and uh, if you have any prayers, what, uh, anything with, that you could use prayer over, these folks would love to pray with you. If, um, if you've never been introduced to this Jesus who was there at the beginning <laughs> creating life out of chaos and is still here creating life out of chaos, these folks would love to introduce you to him. And as we close, if you're willing, I'm going to ask that you would just put your hands out and receive this benediction. Now, may the God who from the foundation of the world has been bringing life out of chaos, breathe life into your chaos. May you be reminded that you are not an accident. May you be reminded that you are not an afterthought. Now, may the God who from the foundation of the world has been bringing life out of chaos, breathe life into your chaos. May you be reminded that you are not an accident. May you be reminded that you are not an afterthought. And may you remember that the Spirit of God that was hovering over creation is still hovering now.